Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello and welcome to the Amplify podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert, Amplify producer at Nottingham Playhouse. I'm once again holed up in my makeshift bedroom studio, having a series of interesting conversations with exciting theatre folk. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Amplify podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert and today I'm joined by the brilliant Natalie Dew. Hi Natalie, how are you doing? Thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Nice to be here. How's um, how's your Wednesday morning going? Uh, Tuesday so morning is Tuesday, isn't it? So, yeah. Tuesday, great start. Um, yeah. Tuesday so far has been good. I've had some porridge, which to be honest might have been a bit of a bad choice because it was too it was too warm for porridge. Porridge feels very much like an oppressive food in this weather. Um, <laughs> I know, but I did cover it in cold milk, but yeah, I'm... I think it was the wrong choice. So what have you, how has the last year been for you? What have you been up to during the various lockdowns? Oh, blimey, O'Reilly. Um, what have I been up to? I mean, I sort of did what everyone else did. So I, I made the banana bread and hated myself because I hate baking, but everybody was doing it. So I thought I might as well see if that's... Was it good? It was fine. All right. <laughs> I mean, who cares? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It was it was absolutely what it was, um, but I'm just not a good baker. I have I love cooking, like I'm, I love cooking, but I hate baking because it just feels like everything can go wrong at every moment, and you've got no control. Uh, no, very much not. It's very much the oven's job, isn't it? Yeah. There's not much. You, there's not much you can do once you close that door. Apart well, exactly. From yeah. And you and you can't salvage it. But I'm, look, I did it, and um, and then what else did I do? I did a lot of DIY, pretty poorly. But I, um, but I had an att- attempt at using sealant and um, painting walls sort of patchedly. But I had a go at all the stuff, really. I mean, because after a while, I was just, I couldn't watch any more TV. No, I mean, I feel like I very much completed Netflix oh in, in the first lockdown. Um, and, sin- and since then, yeah, it's been, it's been very difficult. And when it, when it, first, when it first happened, were you, were you working? Did you have to stop working? Or were you not no, working? Luckily, um, I wasn't, I mean, I say luckily I wasn't working, but I, I didn't sort of have that loss of, of losing out on a project that was meant to be happening. But mm-hmm. we, um, uh, we'd just finished, or our, our first season of Sandylands was coming out. Um, so that aired in the March. And it was just a really bizarre thing because we'd all sort of built up to that, that sort of it finally being out there and people being able to see it. But it it's yeah it just sort of all felt really strange to try and celebrate or anything in that in that environment because suddenly the world was on fire and you know something much bigger was happening that that yeah it was a really odd feeling yeah I can imagine and I suppose that under normal circumstances when the show came out there would have been stuff for you to do like you'd have had to talk to people and whatnot yeah yeah exactly so we did bits of it but after a while like you know, even companies that we were, you know, I was speaking to or whatever, or papers we were speaking to, suddenly were going, you know, we're, we're having to shut the offices for six months. And especially daily newspapers that were working, like, we're not really sure what we're going to be doing. So it was a really surreal, but obviously, you were like, you know, your, your world and what's going on is so much bigger than this. But yeah, it was really odd, really, really odd. Yeah, I can imagine. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? So Devon is uh, where I grew up. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd sort of, sort of say I'm a Devon girl, but I am, 
to my shame, I, I don't really go back as often as I should, but um, I still love it. It's such a beautiful part of the world. But, um, uh, but yeah, and, London's my sort of home now. And are there um, arts and culture in your family or are you the first one? No, not at all. I'd say there's show-offs in my family. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> but, um, no, it was a really, it was a really odd thing. My my parents really sort of pushed me towards it because I'm an only child. So right. they they wanted um, you out of the house. Essentially, they were just like, "You're exhausting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> please burden someone else with this energy." And uh, yeah, so they put me into drama class, and I just loved it. It was it was you know it was just so nice to hang out with other children. But I really sort of. Um, I just really took to it and I was a massive show off. I loved um, Faulty Towers and I really grew up on that sort of comedy. And I any I just, yeah, liked show, making a real sort of spectacle of myself. So they put me into drama class and then it was something that always was there. But then I went to secondary school and didn't do any of it because I was so mortified of being seen by any of my peers doing anything that I was passionate about. Right. Um, that I completely didn't do it at school. So I didn't do any drama at school until my A-levels when I sort of came out on the other side of all those horrid teenage feelings and um, then did an A-level. And then it was sort of getting into, do you want to go to university and where, where do you want to go sort of vibes. And um, it was a really strange one because I, I genuinely hadn't really ever thought about pursuing it as a career. It was just something that was consistent in my life without necessarily knowing it was you know where I wanted to be yeah and um and then it got to the point of saying well you know you could have there is this thing of drama school you can apply and I the only one I'd ever heard of was RADA like I just hadn't heard of any other drama schools really and Lambda a little bit and uh yeah and then luckily when I I then started to audition and then you meet other people in those waiting rooms and you suddenly go oh hang on this this is a thing that people do and um yeah, there's lots of other like-minded people who sort of feel the same because I just didn't have anybody in my school who, who was going down that route. They were all doing proper jobs. <laughs> so at that point, when you decide that you're going to go to drama school, is mm. that the decision that, yes, I'm going to pursue this as a career, I'm going to do this with my life? Or were you still thinking, well, maybe I'll do this for a bit and then see where I end up? It's funny because I, I sort of didn't have a backup plan. Like The only other thing I was remotely interested in at school really was classics I loved classics um but I didn't apply for for any university places so I only I didn't do any university places I only went for drama school so I guess deep down I must have gone well I might it's sort of now or never I might as well see if if this is going to stick because I hadn't given myself any sort of backup option but um but I don't know how much of that I I just I, I was really misinformed, if I'm honest. I just didn't really, I just, well, I just didn't know. I, I sort of went, well, I might as well see. And I'm really lucky that I got in because luckily I didn't, I didn't have to think about anything else and the decision was made and then I completely threw myself into it. But, and where did you go? Um, I went to Guildhall. Right. And um, yeah, so luckily that sort of put some sort of blocks in place for me that then I went, okay. This is this feels like roots now. And what was that experience like? The three years you spent at Guildhall was it a good time? Yeah, I mean it's insane and it's intense, and there's no part of me that would want to do it again. Um, but um, it's a uh, I was because I came straight from school and also straight from Devon. Even coming to London was such a huge experience, and um, I think for me, I, it it really allowed me to grow up and um 
when I went to drama school, my my father had passed away when I was uh, 14 and I it wasn't really something that I'd ever talked about or dealt with. So mm. it wasn't um, it wasn't something I was easily sort of able to express. And when um, it's so, so much so that I just never told anybody, I used to always pretend he was alive because I just couldn't bear somebody not being able to deal with it. And when I got to drama school, it was the first time that they sort of picked up on the fact that it was clearly something that was incredibly hard for me to even talk about in everyday you know language and um and they completely made me address it and honestly if I hadn't have done that at drama school I think when you say they do you Mm. mean do you mean your peers or the people who were teaching you teachers right they they just sort of went "Mm, ever tried therapy ever tried talking ever tried and I was like no as if I'm fine whatever and I was so (laughs) defensive I was terrible for that and um because it because it just wasn't a thing I don't know because I'd never been offered it I guess as a teenager to suddenly then do it you know, five years later after he'd gone felt really counterintuitive because you sort of go, well, I've half been coping for four years. To, so to revisit it feels really difficult. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and just doesn't feel natural. Yeah. And it's also quite hard because I, uh, I have a similar experience to you and I, I lost my mum when I was uh, relatively young as well. And mm. you, uh, if you don't, um, address it directly which Mm. I didn't much like you and I think that's just part of the culture that I grew up in Mm. um that you you know you don't really talk about these things you just immediately try and make everything better you sort of you develop the um uh a a carapace of scar tissue don't you (laughs) and then and it's it's actually it's really hard like later in uh, later in life to break that down um despite the fact that that would be the healthier path like it's um it's it, it, it yeah it becomes increasingly difficult the longer you've decided to um leave it uh, yeah put the shields up against against those things but yeah. that, that was and, that was a worthwhile pursuit for you doing that oh hugely but also I think it's difficult if you lose a parent at a young age because your your only real sort of network is your own friends who are of similar age and so many of them also aren't equipped to be able to support you through that so it's a it's a really strange one because the people that you would go to you suddenly feel really aware that maybe they're not the right people or the best people to be able to deal with that and so you just don't talk about it and nobody has and lots of people don't really have a shared experience of it and obviously as you get older like you know that you meet people in in later life and especially as I've got older you weirdly can sort of tell if somebody's lost a parent um (laughs) and there seems to be this sort of thing of going oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I can sort of see that, and it, it's it's actually as awful as it is for anybody to to suffer through it. There's something quite nice about meeting people later in your life, and and there is a sort of shared thing of going, oh, it's just rotten. It's just like the worst thing. But it, but at least you're sort of then being able to have those conversations with people. And I think if I hadn't have gone to drama school and and sort of allowed myself to be able to talk about it there, I wouldn't be able to have the sort of open relationships and chats with people about it now. And I'd sort of miss out on that. Um, and in terms of like the work you were doing at drama mm. school, what what particularly stands out for you? What were your? Um, I, I would I'd love to know. I'm really interested <laughs> in these these like moments where you thought, oh yeah, actually, you know what? I uh, I might actually be quite good at this. I guess. Well, first of all, one of the, I think the biggest things for me to learn going from school to a drama school was that the teachers there are completely different to the teachers at school, in terms of. Um, it is more of a a dialogue rather than everybody's just going to tell you what to do. And it was a real shock for me because I, because we're so spoon fed at school in terms of like what's right and wrong and what you need to learn for the exams to get through it and all of that. I found it really sort of eye opening that 
it was very much what you put into it, you got out of it. And I was useless, uh, I'd say for the first year of drama school, because I always went second to last in any um, exercise we did, because I was so embarrassed or awkward about getting up in front of my now very cool new friends. Um, It was just a nightmare. And I remember one teacher sort of sat down and was like, "Mm, you're going to have to maybe go like first once or twice in a year. Um, and really, really just put, your, put the risk there Nat, and sort of have a go because otherwise you're just, you're, you're just sort of going to waste it. And we had this huge chat where it was like, oh, okay, I guess, yeah, I've now need to sort of be a bit more active in my decision-making. But, um, but I think in terms of, oh gosh, in terms of thinking, or well, when was a moment, um, actually weirdly, uh, we did a circus project it was my myself and a mate called Max who was in my year and um yeah and we did this project together where we had to devise a circus thing which was hugely exposing in loads of ways but was so fun what did you do what was it oh god we were like he was like a puppet master and I was a it was like a Frankenstein story we made up and um but yeah and then we had to do like loads of gym in it but because he's really tall and I'm quite small um we just worked quite well in a sort of little and large thing. And it's still something he really talks about very fondly because we were like, oh, wow, if you, if you apply yourself, it's actually quite amazing what we can get done rather than sort of sitting back and thinking we're quite cool. Um, if you actually like put yourself forward in a more active way, you get loads out of it. And um, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, after that we were like, oh yeah, okay, let's, let's just try a lot more, shall we? And actually see, <laughs> see if, we get, if we can get some more out of this. And uh, yeah, it was a real turning point. I think for us yeah it's um it's an odd thing when you realize realize that isn't it because like um I think that I think there's a thing and I think it particularly affects you when you're when you're younger Mm. where if you don't try that's sort of a a method of protection in itself because if you don't try and it turns out you're brilliant well you're a genius yeah if you don't try and it doesn't work out, well, what do you expect? I didn't try in the first place, so yeah. I'm fine. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's really it's a really odd thing, and it is such a hang up from school in terms of you know you don't want to be made fun of or you don't want to have like put something that you really cared into, but everybody just thought it was silly. Like there's so many little things, but um, but yeah, getting over that hurdle is such a relief of just going, oh, who cares? Like it doesn't matter. Just just sort of jump in and see what happens was, yeah, was a huge turning point for me in terms of also just surprising myself and not being so in my head all the time. How does the um, the transition out of drama school into like being a proper working actor go for you? What was that process like? It was strange for me because I was lucky that my um, my first agent, he um, he came and saw me in a third year show and it was the first third year show we did. And we had a meeting after that and he he offered me representations there, then and there, which was great in terms of, um, you know, that whole reason of doing third year shows is that you hope you'll get some industry interest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt very lucky in that sense that I, and I said yes very quickly as well, because I, I got a good feeling from him. And so I felt like that, that was very much settled quickly. So um, once that, once I'd signed, I then got a job in the third year. So I left, um, Guildhall a bit early so I missed out on the musical and I um, did uh, uh, 12th Night in Regent's Park and that was my first introduction to being out which is just as a place to work is just such an incredibly magical place and you 
of all the sort of jobs to have as your first, like listening to lions in the interval and like from coming from London Zoo and just gorgeous summer evenings. And yeah, it felt like a, a proper dream. But it's but it's weird losing your group and losing the people that you've been acting with for three years. And suddenly you're working with other people who work completely differently and maybe don't want to do a warm up with you and maybe don't want to wear blacks. Um and do a sort of movement call and you know it's it's a really strange thing to suddenly be like oh yeah people work differently and I can imagine that must have been a a really tricky experience in that you've spent three years I would imagine well doing plays inside for a start yeah sure thinking (laughs) thinking a little bit about uh stuff for camera and whatnot and then you're on that massive open stage in the heat of the summer or more consistently the rain of the summer (laughs) it's a massive auditorium that actually like when I'm in there I'm my partner was in a show there a couple of years ago and I'm always surprised by how it's beautiful it's a great place to be as an audience member and like and like I'm so envious of Tim that he gets to go to work there every day I know could you imagine um but when when you sit in that auditorium, it always when you see the actors come on, especially if you're if you're a bit further back, like they look so small and like mm. they're so unsupported in there. Like I can't imagine yeah. what that must be like as your first job. Yeah, it is a lot. I mean, I was lucky in terms of I was so vocally trained, so that, that like that like doing it now, I'd be like, oh crikey, I better go and sort of remember how to do all of this. Um, but because I was so in that mindset, that that wasn't so much the scary thing. It was more the thing of. Um, suddenly having to pretend that you knew everything <laughs> like it's it's odd because especially because it's your first job you you have that bravado of being like yeah I mean I'm, I'm okay I mean I've, I've trained in this so I'm okay but it's um but yeah you just suddenly go oh gosh it, it, you you do feel a bit um not lonely but as I said you sort of miss your group so like you you just miss that backbone that you've had and you're suddenly standing on your own um albeit with a, a lovely new bunch of actors it's um yeah it's 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 a a big sort of growing up step you've been in the fortunate position of uh getting to getting your agent Mm. pretty much straight away and getting a job pretty much straight Mm. away at what point during the next couple of years of being an actor do you do you feel like one do you get to say to yourself oh yes I'm definitely this now probably my first bout of unemployment yeah brilliant <laughs> we, we, great will you, will you tell will you tell me about it uh yeah so I was lucky or well, fortunate for the first couple of years I'd say maybe first two or three years that I worked uh I had a good um frequency of work and so felt was sort of like okay it's it's hard and everything's different but there was a sort of thing of going there's maybe a few months off and then something else came in so i was lucky in that sense and then i think when i was about 23 i finished a job at the rsc which was a great job and obviously it's a job at the rsc as well so you go okay great that's a that's a great bouncing block so obviously i'll i'll just keep working you know bounce to bounce bounce mm. and uh, as tigger as i sort of bounced along and then i finished that job and then nothing came and nothing came for about I think it was just over a year a year and a half Mm. and that's when I suddenly went oh my god that this is this is hard and I and it was different from other people that I knew from my year who had come out and not worked first and then incrementally got work um I was sort of going the opposite way I got work and then suddenly it was nothing and so even my closest friends who you would normally talk to about it, it was really hard because you're not, you're never in the same place at the same time. 
So when I wanted to go and sit in a pub and really moan about the industry, they were they were doing great. <laughs> and vice versa, when you know, when they wanted a, maybe a bit of venting, I was like, oh, I'm really busy, I'm in rehearsals. <laughs> so like it's a, that I found really tricky all of a sudden because I was like, ah, so who do I a who do I talk to about this because quite frankly nobody wants this com- wants to hear this conversation it's so boring like as well as much as I love a vent about how hard it is if you if you sort of sit in a pub and talk about it for hours you realize it's not doing anything and it's making you feel worse about all of your life decisions yeah. um so you've got to sort I think you've got to be really careful with that because you can get into a real headspace of well this is just rubbish um and I and I don't and I feel like things aren't working and doors aren't and I'm knocking on doors that aren't being heard and yeah it felt it felt really weird and really unfair because you you know well I've done some work though so why is why is this hard and I think it was that when you suddenly go ah there's no progression it doesn't really yeah. work like that um yeah was a huge was like just a massive thing because nobody as and everyone says even every taxi driver you'll ever meet will go oh it's a really hard profession you've gone into and you're like, and you get so used to that chat from anybody who feels that they can sort of comment on it. Um, but you never really take that on board because if you did, no, you would, nobody would do it. And, and also you can't imagine it. No, absolutely. Um, and I think you sort of have to forget about it every time you've got a job as well. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Of course, that I think, and you really do, and you go, this is great, you have to be in that moment of going, well, this is great for now, and this is great for however long this contract is, but I think it's it's a, it's such a hard thing to not in your head plan ahead, because it's so natural, and in everybody everybody else's line of work, that's how it goes, you do a job and you incrementally move up, or you get a higher status in your industry, or you get a, a promotion, or whatever that is, and ours just doesn't work like that. And have you um, have you had any fun day jobs, as it were? I had David. I, I had um, terrible jobs. Yeah, but go on. <laughs> I had uh, I had David Haig on here um, oh, last such year. A nice, and, such a good actor, such a nice man. And he spoke very fondly of laying drains in Norway as a day job that he did for, for a summer. Uh, so, um, can you match laying drains in Norway? <laughs> oh, that's pretty rough. Um, I'd say. One of my worst ones was in a call centre. Oh, God, I've done so many. But one of my worst ones was in a call centre. And I had to ring people to donate money to dogs in China. Right. And it was so awful. And they gave us an incentive. So if you if you got a certain amount or a certain target, you got a bottle of wine. So I was there... I was there for a week and for whatever reason I did very well. I mean, I feel terrible about terrible about it now because obviously a lot of it was just ringing elderly people. Um and they were so lovely and and oh god, it was just such a crisis moment. Anyway, I did very well in my first week, got the bottle of wine. Uh and then sort of ran out of incentive. So the next week just kept ringing people but hanging up but just pretending that I'd done the calls. And then I caught, got called into an office where they were like you're doing terribly after your first good week um what's this about and I remember sort of getting chastised and I was like I just don't care I just don't I just don't care enough about this job to be told off and I and I really don't want to get better at it so I can't do this (laughs) uh and so I walked I walked out of that and then 
at Guildhall, a friend of mine, we used to do that, one of those terrible jobs where you just try and get people into a club. Um, oh, yes. And you get commission. Oh, God. Like, honestly, if I fit the thought about, if I think about seeing us standing there trying to do this, it, it just makes me want to tear my skin off with shame. But, um, yeah. And so I, just I wonder, does, do does that even still exist? God, I mean, I, I, nightclubs are very much not my game. So I'm, I wouldn't know. I'm but I was just thinking, right? I haven't seen that for years. <laughs> But, you know, it may still happen. It's just I'm not there, am I? Well, I know. I feel this. I genuinely don't know. But we, oh, God, we, and it was awful because you used to start at like 10 p.m. And then we just, we didn't finish about until about 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. in the morning. And then we'd have to do Guildhall the next day um, because it was all cash in hand. And so we thought, you know, we were just living kings. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, we only coped. We, uh, she was much better than I was. I was useless because as much as I love chatting to people, it's just everyone's on a night out and like, oh, God, it's just so... Oh, awful. So yeah, that was that was also um, a real sort of low, low point job. But it's so hard to get a job because you're like, yeah, great. I really love people. I'm really great to work with people. Love being part of a team. I will probably drop this at um, uh, any opportunity if an acting job comes up. So of course, people are like, okay, well, <laughs> that's that's not hugely great for us. Um, so it's really hard to get anything. But yeah, bar work was was the only real solid because if you could get enough people to that from your who are actors you could all cover each other and that was when it, it could sort of work and so like you move along and you're uh you're having a, like an excellent you're building an excellent career deal you did um 12th night at the every man in liverpool which was the yeah. first time i saw you and yeah. you were in that well done uh, and then it felt for a bit like I was following you around because I then immediately saw you in the internet as a serious business. Oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> um, Such a bonkers play. It was brilliant, though. I loved it. it okay. it's, it's one of, yeah, uh, uh, it definitely stands out in my memory as uh, a really good, fun night in the theatre seeing that play. Yes. Um, but then, of course, you uh, you were in Bend It Like Beckham, which is sort of a stratospherically successful show, movie, and then show. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about um, what that was like? First of all, because, yeah. like, you know, it was a big big musical they made they made a lot of noise about it before it opened did you have to go through the uh elaborate musical casting process yeah and it was oh gosh it was it was mad like i'm so it was such a mad turn of events so basically they they asked um i got offered to to go in for the audition and i hadn't really sung since i was about 18 and I did singing at school, but again, nothing I really did in front of people. I just was a really nervous singer for some reason. And I w was never like that as a kid. And then teenage years hit and I just couldn't bear it. So I, it was never something that I really enjoyed doing in front of people. But I, but I can hold a tune. And so I got asked to audition and my agent at the time was like, well, I think you sort of should. And I was like, oh, God, it's going to be really embarrassing. And I'd sung in an audition for something else about a, maybe six months before and I'd got so nervous and so I kept breathing in. So I kept like gasping in uh, whilst I was singing this song. So much so that I made myself cry. Oh no. Yeah. And the director was like, uh, should we just do the sides first? Because I think obviously he thought I was emotional, but I just had lost control of my breathing and just forced myself into tears because I was so nervous about it. And after that experience, I was like, well, I'm just not putting myself through it. It's like, I don't love singing enough. Uh, what fine it just won't be something I do so I'd said this to my agent I was like I just don't want to go there and then to go okay well she's not a strong singer um and he was like no look go they're looking for actors just just go 
I also spoke to my boyfriend at the time who was who said the similar thing, but I was really adamant um not to go. Anyway, they both convinced me to go and um I went and sang uh, Adele, classic, um, a really easy sing. So I sang Adele, Someone Like You, and Excellent. sang. And um, and it was all right. Like, it was fine. It wasn't like an incredible rendition of it. But they had a chat with me and were like, and they were very honest and were like, you would need some work on your singing. And I was like, yes, I would. Um, and they were like, they just sort of said, okay, let's see how that goes. So then between each audition round, I would have singing lessons. So I'd have maybe two weeks before the next recall where I would meet up with an amazing singing teacher called Sam Kenyon. And he would work with me on the, on the songs in the show. And then I would audition again. So this happened, I think maybe four or five times. And each recall room was just bigger. And, and after a while I was like, Oh God, this is, um, is, I'm sort of getting somewhere now. And I genuinely in my head, I never ever thought I would get the job. And hadn't even, it just hadn't even entered my head at all. So after we did the recalls, it wasn't then straight to the job. They then went, well, we'd like to um, offer you to come and do a workshop on the show, on the musical. So then I did, I think it was about two weeks where we did a, a workshop on it. And I think that was the first time because I got to play the part a bit more and I got to do more of the acting side of it as well, which was obviously where my comfort zone was. Mm. Um, I was like, Oh, hang on! This could this could work because also I was being really supported in terms of going. You need work on singing. You clearly need work on football. Um, let's let's offer that to you and see what happens. And I think having that support, you you can thrive because you're like, oh, well, people people want me to be the best version and want to see if I can achieve it. Um, so it makes you work really hard. <laughs> um, and so yeah, it was after the workshop they said. Um, like to offer it to you and even then I was like but I just I just couldn't imagine myself doing it and especially because it was a long it was I mean the longest contract I would have ever done I mean it just wasn't insane but the um but I think for me the the most and, and like I mean so insane like even to the point like I remember doing like the first dance sort of days as well and it's and obviously working with brilliant musically theatre trained people who are so impeccably good at what they do um it's hugely intimidating because I just wasn't trained in that. So having to be at the front of a rehearsal, learning a dance when I know the people behind me can get it. I mean, so much quicker than I can um, was, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was such a huge um, overwhelming challenge, but uh, such a great one because quite frankly, after doing that job, anything else seems easy in comparison. How's your football now? <laughs> do you know what I wish I could send you a video Craig because I've got this a video which will be burned onto everything I mean if it's not on my to- tombstone um, I'll be surprised but um, there's a video of me doing I'd say solidly like 14 to 15 keepy uppies because um, I really worked at it because I just knew there's no way of me being able to sell this show if I can't even look remotely comfortable with the ball um, which I wasn't because I, I didn't grow up on football. I, I didn't have brothers and sisters who I played football with. It just wasn't something that was um, at all part of my childhood. So my my fella used to take me to the park and he basically became like quite a strict Scottish football coach to me. <laughs> and we would just spend hours in the park, mainly, I mean, I cry at anything, but I cried a lot because I just found it, de- I found it so infuriating 
but he was like no we're not going home until you get so many keepy-uppies so I just I just kept going but what I would say was amazing was it opened up a whole world of speaking to anybody like about football because I I just didn't understand I had no idea what a currency it was wherever you go in the world that you can sort of chat to anybody um about football people just oh yeah yeah, absolutely oh my god yeah, any any pretty much everyone will talk to you will talk to you about football. But so it's I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm I'm just distracted for a moment trying to imagine what passers by must have seen when you and your boyfriend were in the park. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, they would have thought it was some weird, like it was bizarre. Ang- angry Scottish bloke. Yeah, <laughs> shouting at a woman that's clearly never looked at a football. No, before. couldn't yeah. even, couldn't even hold it comfortably, let alone have it at my feet. <laughs> and so I bought all the gear, absolutely no idea, and just sort of rolled around. And then I remembered, like, like boys would come up to me sometimes and be like, "Can I play?" And I was like, "Okay." And so we'd sort of like play for a bit, and then they'd be like, "Okay, bye." And I was like, this is so weird. A, that they think I can actually play football. But um, but yeah, but I trained. So basically I trained uh, with some great people. And then we, Tottenham Hotspur ladies um, were our sort of um, advisors on the show as well. So we got to play a bit with them and played like little games. And then we got a day out with Tottenham Hotspur as well for like PR and things like that, which was just mortifying because... They obviously wanted shot and like some of the players from Tottenham Hotspur came and like that I've never met a footballer um, shockingly mm-hmm. before that. And um, the only sort of reference I had was being obsessed with Michael Owen when I was younger, like could tell you every fact about him, just thought he was the most beautiful person I'd ever seen in my life. But other than that, I, I didn't I didn't really have a concept of a footballer. And also Michael Owen's quite small, whereas the Tottenham Hotspur men were like Greek Adonis men. They were just massive like amazing at what they did and so they sort of were so lovely as I had to do shots of me trying to like score into a goal I mean the whole thing was just terrible and had to sort of look on encouragingly but I I mean I can't play football so I mean they were really nice but I mean it was incredible it was so pitiful to watch but you've got I had we did get some lovely shots of me having a lovely time because I mean they were just really supportive of someone who was clearly dreadful at football (laughs) <laughs> and was doing the show a good time as well because obviously it is, it is a long run isn't it you're doing it every night it's, it's it's hard work yeah it's really hard I mean it's a I'm so grateful to it in loads of ways and especially in terms of discipline it really shows you um because because unlike the people who are brilliantly musically trained I I didn't have the luxury of my my voice wasn't as sort of robust as theirs so on Sundays, I wouldn't speak for the whole day. So I basically, it felt, it felt sort of like living like a nun for about a year. So I, even going to a pub or going to see mates, that anxiety about going, oh God, this is too loud. This bar's too loud. I'm not going to last. And just knowing that I, I, if it was loud, I maybe had 20 minutes tops and then I'd had to get out of there. So it felt really hard because I love my friends and I love people and not being able to be there for them for a year feels really selfish and feels quite, um, yeah, just feels a bit like mean and you're missing people's weddings and you're missing big moments in people's lives when they're doing things or need you. And because of the pressure surrounding the job, I, I also knew that I couldn't go off. So meeting somebody out and going for a drink or whatever just wasn't an option for me. So that, that was the hardest 
the hardest thing. And I, I really, because loads of people get into acting because the social life is just brilliant and you meet so many good people and connect all the time with new people and, and have those sort of fun relationships. And so not being able to have that felt, yeah, felt really difficult. Can we uh, just switch focus for a few minutes and just talk very briefly about process? Mm. So when I have um, directors on this podcast, mm-hmm. I always ask them, what does the first week look like in your rehearsal room? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm going to ask you, what mm. do you need from a director in the rehearsal process when making a play, I'm talking about specifically, to do your best work? Like, what, what are you really looking for when you're being directed by someone? Oh, God, that's so interesting. It's so different from it's so different from part to part, because I guess I'm very aware of what I bring for free in terms of I know what what I have in my sort of kit, as it were. I guess um, I guess transparency with a director. I, I really appreciate somebody if they don't have the answers, to be honest, and then we figure that out together or if somebody's got a really clear idea of what they want to let me know and I can probably figure it I can I can find a way of getting there I think sometimes if there's too much um not wanting to tread on each other's toes it actually sometimes gets in the way of um of getting to the result you both want quick much quicker so I I quite like it if somebody's quite direct in that sense of going this is what I need from you at this point and if and if they can then hopefully trust me enough to be able to get there by myself that's great or if I can't then then you know I can I can go back and it can be more of a joint thing as well but I think transparency is is the big one for me um I've worked with some lovely great directors and I mean Gemma being one of them and um what she did in the room as well is she's got such an atmosphere of love and support so I think creating a really safe place where you can play and it's not um every decision you make doesn't have to be one that's then suddenly put down in pen so that it can be something that can change tomorrow. And it, and whatever version you're doing today is today's version. And if you want to keep something from today's version, that's great. But if tomorrow you want to completely change that, that's also great because I think sometimes it's really easy to put those, those penned things down in place too early. And mm. actually you're, you're limiting what that discovery can be um, when you've still got another four weeks of rehearsal or whatever left as well. Great. And just before rehearsals begin, mm. I'm always interested in this. Mm. What kind what kind of work are you doing at home? How are you preparing to play a part? Read it's it's different so with plays I tend mm. to unless specifically being asked I don't I won't learn the lines. I find it quite um inhabiting if I if I do it without physicalizing first. I know lots of people like to learn all the lines so they can actually have a bit more freedom but I'm the other way. I quite like um being on book for at least the first sort of week week and a half. Um, before I start learning but I think um, I guess I mean the normal things I say normal I don't know how everyone else works but I I guess in terms of just reading rereading researching anything that's mentioned researching the time period realizing what anybody says about me what I say about other people and I think trying to find the moments of light and shade within a character and I think that's especially you see that more so when things feel a bit more blocked or a bit more um like sometimes in Shakespeare, it's quite difficult when you're given a character who everybody says is fair or everybody says is great or the wonderful Hermia or the, you know, I think sometimes those characters are quite hard because you suddenly go, okay, fine. So she might have nice hair, but like, what, like what, what is there to her? So it's, I think it's finding for yourself what those moments are where maybe your character isn't the nicest version of themselves or they don't like so-and-so 
as much as you think they do, as well as all the moments where they're positive and brilliant versions of themselves. I think it's quite fun to to have for yourself what when are the when are they not nice or when are they maybe not thinking nice things about that other person on stage or whatever that is just so that the whole thing is enriched because otherwise sometimes you feel like I don't know sometimes you can just feel like you're playing absolutely everything that's there on the page whereas actually you you want more festering underneath and actually going back to your earlier question about one of the biggest things that you or moments that you sort of learned at drama school was when um when we did check off I played a, uh, a part where um, she was on stage a lot of the time but barely said anything. And we did loads of things about internalising thoughts and, and figuring out what are you thinking all the time so that your head was always in the mind of the character. And to know that there was all, all of that stuff going on, all of that longing and desire and hatred and whatever that was, all of that's bubbling all the time. And even though you're, you've only got four lines to speak out loud, it doesn't mean that you're sort of, turned off or asleep or you know whatever that is for the rest of it it's to to find those things that are bubbling underneath for you all the time well i just have one final question Gosh, this has gone so it. quick well it's been an excellent conversation thank you so much for taking the time thanks go on what's your question can you tell me about the last work of art that absolutely blew your mind and art in the broadest sense so theater film visual art anything you like i so many people are going to say this but I'm going to have to say it. And so many people are going to say this. But I think um, I think I May Destroy You was one of the most astonishing pieces of yes. art I'd ever seen. And it's so funny. I was actually um, outside socially distanced in a pub last night and um, was speaking to a mate about it. And we were trying to pinpoint, like, what was it? What was it that was so um, inspiring? And I think... I think for me, it was just it was just the humanity of seeing the complications and the the true amazing complications of being a woman as well portrayed in such in such a wonderful uh, normal way. And I think and I remember like watching certain moments and just I was so overwhelmed by seeing things that I had never seen on screen and that are so every day or every month or every you know that are so something part of my life that I just don't see out there and I yeah and I just the it was so brave and so um yeah it felt like a real turning point for tv I think in terms of going if they're doing this that means they're really listening to the story that needs to be told and they're not trying to commercialize it and they're not trying to shoehorn it into something that's more tasteful or more palatable or more you know accessible they're going this is the story and we will tell you that story and I thought that was a real like this is this is exciting. Like this is exactly where we should be moving and should be going. Yeah, great. Let's hear about let's hear about this. And I don't know. Have the courage, I guess, to show everything. Show everything uh, that's not glamorous and not Instagrammable and not you know nice. I, I yeah. I just thought it was fantastic. Brilliant and excellent recommendation. That's um, Michaela Cole's "I May Destroy You," which uh, everyone listening can still watch online if you haven't seen it already. Although I would imagine you've seen it already. <laughs> it's brilliant. Where have it's you brilliant. been? Everybody, yeah, yeah. Uh, great stuff. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thanks, Craig. It's been really lovely. Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghampleyhouse.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released. Music.